Hello and welcome to the latest Electronic Sound podcast. My name is Push and I am the editor of Electronic Sound and I have with me Mark Rowland. Hello. Who is the deputy editor and Neil Mason. Hello. Who is the commissioning editor and uh, we're talking about our new issue, issue 44, which has just come out. We have a very bright red cover. It's our summer special, like the Beano. Yeah, you know, like when Plug goes on, they go to a BMP in Blackpool or something and get in trouble with teacher, but yeah. it's, it's at the seaside. <laughs> That's what it's like. That's what it's like. Yeah, yeah. And nicely, it's uh, summer 1978, New York's new wave heat wave, which has coincided with our very own heat wave. 40 years on, which we're still enjoying as we record this very podcast. Yeah, apparently it's going to break tonight. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be raining. By the time you get this, you'll have been rained on for days, probably. Um, is that it, though? Is this it? Is this the last day of it? I Although I, I no. saw somewhere that it's going to go on until October. Well, maybe not the heatwave, but it's going to be really, how, really nice. How British are we? Talking about the weather. I'm very British. We have a lot of it. So... Um, Meanwhile, back in electronic sound land, mm-hmm. we have, um, as Mark said, summer 1978. We've got four. We've picked on four bands for New York summer 78, and those four bands being Devo, Suicide, Talking Heads, and Blondie. And we're analysing each of those bands had an album out that summer that was um, for each of them a real landmark album, and I think for for music in general, really. Um, landmark records. Um, Mark, can you can you re- relay the three albums? <laughs> no, sorry, four albums. Four albums. Three, if you like, but four <laughs> would be better. <laughs> well, I think the other th- extraordinary thing about them is they came within weeks of each other. They just kept coming. The Suicide album, which was their debut, I yep. believe, uh, was actually originally released or first released in America at the end of '77. On, um, right, right at the end of December. It was in like December. Ended right at the end of December. Right, yeah. yeah. Right, it's sort of released to be completely lost. Yeah, over Christmas. Yeah, uh, on Marcy Thau's label, the Suicide's manager, um, which was then picked up by... Bronze. Bronze label, which was an unusual label. What were they doing picking Suicide up? It's a great story in the piece, actually. We've got... Um, so we've got interviews with all four bands, I should try to explain yes. that. Um, and there's a great story in the Suicide piece, uh, which was written by Chris Needs, um, about the guy from Bronze, about him, about him, about the fact that nobody else would go anywhere near Suicide, but he absolutely loved them and brought the album out. Um, so yeah, Bronze were, they'd been around a while, they were well, sort of it, independent. Yeah, label. I mean, even the guy from Bronze said, we were the label that nobody ever went to. That's right. Yeah. Nobody wanted to sign to Bronze. Yeah, yeah, they, were, they, they had that sort of reputation. But um, So that came out in July, I believe, 78, in the UK, on yep. the br- aforementioned Bronze label. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Blondie's Parallel Lines, I think, also came out in July. Or was it a bit later? Uh, no, Talking Heads, More Songs About Buildings and Food came out in July. Devo's Are We Not Men came out in August. Uh, and then I think Blondie Blond- came out in September. Blondie was September. So yeah. it was an extraordinary sort of... It's like who wants to be a millionaire, this fastest finger first. <laughs> Can I call a friend? Put these albums in order of release in the summer of 1970. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Side <laughs> Yeah. 
So, um, so we've got sort of an overview piece about New York um, in yeah. that summer. That's, that's the other thing we've done, is we've decided that, that these, these albums have New York in common. And yeah. obviously three of those bands, Devo, Suicide and Blondie, were all pretty much New York bands. Um, Devo weren't a New York band, but uh, it really happened in New York. I think in the interview I did with Jerry and Mark, they both talk about 1977 when they first arrived um, in New York in March, where Jerry Casali, the bass player and singer and co-architect of Devo, pretended to be their manager and stomped around the city getting gigs and generally chatting people up. And then they started playing there in March at Max's and at CBGB. Um, and you get this real feeling of what a state New York was in in 77. A complete mess. And they had Son of Sam, the serial killer, running around that summer. And they had the, the power cuts, so it all went dark, and all the riots. And all, all this is sort of told from various angles in these stories. And I think that, seven, that, that sort of year, the 77, created these four albums. At least that's our, yeah. that's our theoretical base for the whole thing. And um, and we get yeah the, the stories are absolutely incredible. I mean I, I talked to to Devo um, and just hearing them talking about you know their encounter of Mark Mothersbaugh's encounter with with John Lennon who came to see them who who noticed uh, he'd come to see them at Max's which in itself was incredible you know that there was Lennon living in New York going to gigs at tiny little punk venues of three or four hundred people, going to see bands like Devo, with Ian Hunter. That's right, yeah. Not the Hoople. They were so pissed they could hardly stand up. Uh, but he noticed that Devo's Uncontrollable Urge, which they played that night, was a rip of the Beatles' I Want to Hold Your Hand and She Loves You, the yeah, 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 yeah stuff. Um, and I should mention at this point as well that uh, the single that we've got to go with this is a recording of Devo playing live in the UK, the last date of the UK tour in December, um, 78, where they play uh, Uncontrollable Urge on, on uh, one side and Sloppy Sloppy on the other side. They're both absolutely incredible. Um, on and yellow it's, and it's on yellow vinyl. Yellow vinyl. Devo border suit, border suit yellow. Yeah, that's really great. Um, so, so, yeah, yeah, so Devo, Suicide, Talking Heads, David Bennon talked to Chris France, and a, a really great piece. Um, very funny piece as well, actually. There's some really nice stories in there. Great piece from David. He's um, great, Chris, isn't he? I mean, the way, just the way the way he talks, the way he's, he's so he's such an eloquent. I noticed actually last last week. It, he is fantastic. We did a Chris and Tina single. Uh, some of you will know. Some of you may not. Uh, probably about more than a year ago now. And I noticed that last week he bought a copy. He came, went into our store and bought a copy of his, of his own record yeah. from us. Yeah. Um, so thanks, Chris. Um, and then the last piece of Blondie piece, Chris Roberts, um, uh, they're talking to Debbie and to Chris Stein. Um, some great stories in there. A lot of stuff in there about, um, about Heart of Glass. Uh, great, great story about that. So it's a, it's a nice kind of big, big, chunky kind of four interviews and an overview piece and a seven-inch single. So a really big chunk of the mag it's over 10,000 um, words uh, yeah <laughs> on 
summer 78 New York's new wave heat wave. And, our, and I think in our heads when we, we put this together, I certainly imagined readers sitting in a garden, sweltering with, uh, with a beer and um, getting so hot and reading this and getting sort of transported back 40 years to these hot New York summers and uh, this crucible of creativity. But what a time to be alive, though. I often think that yeah. if I was, I could choose anywhere musically to have, to have lived through, it would be, it would be this period. Yeah, definitely. Living in New York in 77, 78, 79. Well, that's the other thing about it, because you know they could afford all of these bands, maybe not suicide, but they could <laughs> afford to... To, to have a, a floor of a warehouse just off the Bowery. It was such a awful, so run, down, run yeah. down place. So Talking Heads had a loft there, Chris and Tina had a loft where they recorded yeah. uh, Fear of Music. Where he talks in, about it in the piece, doesn't he, Chris? Yeah. Yeah. And Blondie had a loft. Did, yeah. And you know, th- th- these, these were places uh, where they could have a rehearsal space and performances and parties. Philip Glass? Philip Glass, Philip Glass had one, yeah, yeah. And he, he was... But he, wasn't he the fitting bathrooms yeah. and toilets into yeah. everyone's lot. He was driving cabs. And driving cabs, yeah. And he was he was a plumber. Yeah. <laughs> so and because he, he was friends with loads of artists, um, so as they started selling and getting more and more uh, wealthy, he they because these places didn't have proper bathrooms in them, he'd uh, he'd go and put their bathrooms <laughs> in for them. But you know, I looked up because I was writing something about that. Um, you know, so. It, God knows how much a loft cost in those days, but next to nothing. But now, uh, a loft off around the Bowery would be a, the cheapest one I could find was eight and a half thousand dollars a month. Well, but they were totally, they were industrial units, weren't they? Yeah. So the other advantage was that everyone had gone home. There's no one there. there. So there was no just no one there. You're yeah. living there. You make as much noise as yeah. you like at night. Just, just bands. Yeah. They were the only people there. And that, that you know, the gentrification issue. <coughs> so, happened to New York. I mean, here was a city that was falling apart mm. from a sort of, you know, society, community kind of a way, you know, that it was virtually bankrupt, the police weren't getting paid, mm. it was in all kinds of mess, the drugs were terrible, you know, people dying all over the place, with insurance fires going off all over the place as well. Loads of middle-class people just leaving New York, so that's why there's so much of it empty. But like what happened in Detroit later, the black but, but then the, the, well. the artists move in, and it's the exactly. same. It's the same story yeah. everywhere. And, they're, and they're enabled to make these fantastic records and muck about and and, and rehearse and do interesting things, and and then it becomes fashionable, and then everybody sort of start prices start going up. It becomes a lot nicer, but all the artists go away. It's a bit of a sort of a crucible, isn't it, at that point in time? Because you had the, those two like venues it. of yeah. CBGB's yeah. and, and Max's, Max's Kansas City, as well, where these four bands and many of the others, um, many of the other bands as well, played there. And a lot of them, you know, like the Ramones, I think were were probably the, the, the punk band that broke through in the, those two venues in particular and then all these other bands kind of came behind them not far behind them at all um, and New York suddenly became this I mean much as London had done I suppose just a little bit earlier there's a, yeah. there's a really I think it was David Bennett who talked about the fact that there's a uh, the way that it was a bit of a crucible um, and it's always kind of interest, interesting when you think about you know we kind of at that point in time 
and I think London was very much the same, that you actually didn't have that many people involved in these scenes. Mm. I mean, Chris France talks about that a little bit about that as well, about how, you know, they weren't kind of, they had this idea that they all came from arts, they all came from art school backgrounds, and they didn't, you know. And, and I think yeah, the number Patty Smith was very, very sneering of the, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Of the art school students, isn't she? But it's like when you talk, when you look at the, n the number of people involved in, in punk in London in sort of 76 and New York 78, and a lot of these scenes, they, yeah. are, they all knew each other, they were yeah. very, very small yeah, numbers yeah. of people. Um, we well, see footage as well from those gigs, or, or London as well. And the, the legendary shows, the sort of early Sex Pistols shows, and they're, they're quite sparsely attended. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. You know, it was only later that, that they became sort of the the, the myth. huge thing. But those really early shows, you know, you can see the, the Bromley contingent sort of standing around and acres of space where no one else yeah. go near, dare go near them. And you see, in the, there's quite a lot of footage of Max's from that period. Right. It's quite a lot of Devo stuff. And again, you know, it, it's. You know, it's a small club and it's a Tuesday night or yeah. something. There's probably a couple of hundred people in there. but And that's it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's low ceilinged. And, it's and probably half of that couple of hundred people are either in bands yeah. or artists or friends of the bands. Yeah. Or will be in bands. Exactly, yeah. And uh, it doesn't take much uh, to, to, to make so something, something happen. Take off. Yeah. yeah. I remember Ratscabies telling me once that um, he sort of always said that the punk thing in London, the idea of the Pistols, the Damned and the Clash, it all kind of really happened thanks to Bernie Rhodes more than anybody else because Bernie was working for McLaren at the time and was managing the Clash. But he said that it was Bernie that worked out that you'd got these three bands in different parts of London who didn't look anything like each other. They didn't sound anything like each other. But it was Bernie that worked out that if you could get Damned fans and Clash fans to go to Sex Pistols gigs mm. and Pistols fans to go to Damned gigs and Clash gigs yeah. that you created a scene out of nothing. <clears throat> and there may only have been 30 or 40 people for each band, but when you put them together, suddenly you had 120 people. Yeah. And it's then that then you get something kind of happening. And I yeah. guess most cities with little scenes, particularly at that time, it was like that, wasn't it? Probably the same in Sheffield. Yeah. You, all those guys knew each other, didn't they? Yeah, and you get that sort of coincidence of... of the bands and, and then you have you, you sort of need the people who are a little bit older who step into the management kind of role like your Bernie Rhodes and your mm. McLarens and Brian Epstein in Liverpool mm. who know how to open doors and won't take no for an answer and all that stuff while the band carry on taking drugs and writing songs and then also I think you sort of need maybe labels, little labels as well and also you need media and one thing we didn't really touch on in the New York stuff that we did which maybe you know is for another time is the the cable TV right phenomenon in New York which you know we've never had in this country mm. but I think that was incredibly important that they had these wild cable TV shows that uh, particularly Blondie were involved with um, Warhol would would come on to them and, and they were formless hours long shows of messed up people sort of pretending to do television pretending to, to sort of have a coherent conversation about art but actually it was just a load of people who were absolutely pissed off their faces 
talking nonsense. Uh, but, you know, you saw the scene makers and the clothes they were wearing, and, and I think that had a big impact. And I think the nearest we got to it was when Tony Wilson was in control of that little little portion of Granada TV in Manchester mm. in the 70s. Yes, yes. And he used that yeah. to start bringing bands on. So you saw Joy Division and, and all the rest of them on, on, well, we didn't, but they did up there. Yeah, they did, yeah. And I think that that reflected back into the scene and inspired other people. Yeah. And thought, well, you know, we can get on TV. Yeah. And we can do these things. We can play gigs. And, and, I, and I think that sort of... That was really lacking in this country as a as a whole, and I don't think that was in London. I don't think that's that interesting. That was yeah, hadn't really. Yeah. yeah, the nearest we had to, I suppose, was was the music press. That was the and the fanzine scene. Yeah, yeah, was, was the conduit for that. Hmm. Well, uh, for another time, as you say. Um, yeah, yeah. There's there's lots of stories you have to sort of leave out when you do things like this, yeah. otherwise you just end up writing a book. I mean, you know, you say 10,000 words. It's, it's not far off the book. It's a pretty weighty cover <laughs> So, yeah, so... Um, but it's brilliant it's though, isn't it? Because that's the sort of thing that I'd want to read yeah. in a magazine. That's pretty much what we do every month, isn't oh, yeah. it? We essentially just sit down and think, what would we want to read? If, if let's say, we ran a magazine, <laughs> uh, what would you put in it? And uh, if you could make a record with it every month, what would you put on that record? And then we try and do that. We do. That so far, cool. so far, <laughs> so good. So we like it. Yeah. So what else is in the issue? Uh, Neil, do you want to quickly run through some of the other stuff we've got in here? Oh, yes. Thanks for that. Uh, uh, sculpture. We've got a piece about sculpture. Who are an East London duo who are incredible. I've seen them live quite recently-ish, maybe it was this year or yeah, earlier this year I saw them, they're amazing, they do, um, they have these psychedelic visuals where, um, what's his name, Ruben, he has a turntable, a record turntable with a camera, video camera above it, and he creates all these incredible acetates that he spins on these turntables and creates these light shows to go with, it's really, really abrasive, well it's techno I guess. Mm. Is what it is, and they've done a graphic novel to go with their new album, yeah, which is it's a great ambitious. Yeah, but the visuals for that are brilliant. They're really interesting and great. But they're really, yeah, a couple of really interesting characters. Dan, Dan Hayhurst. Yeah, yeah. He did that album. Um, was it called Critter Party? Yes. Yeah. That's an amazing piece of work. Don't put it on at a dinner party. No, it's my advice, but. Um, <laughs> The thing I it, it, I really love the the pictures that they did as well, the uh, their their own promo shots are just great. And we visit the Moog Sound Lab. Yes, down at um, Guildford. Yeah, in Surrey. Surrey. <laughs> University of Surrey. Isn't Surrey. It? Yeah. Or is it Sussex? <laughs> Depends. Uh, yeah. You've been there, haven't you, Mark? I have been there. Yeah, Sussex. It was absolutely fantastic. I spent a day there with uh, Chris Watson and Chris Carter were both performing. Um, Finley Shakespeare, who kind of looks after the... He's the sort of engineer yeah, in sort of yeah. guy who shows you We've interviewed it. him for the piece. He's, uh, well, the thing about it is, is that it's been, it's, it's been this thing that we've been hearing about for a long time, this Moog sound mm. lab, and nobody, mm. nobody's really been able to nail it down or tell us what it is. Paul Smith's involved, yeah. which means that... Paul Smith and Blast first. 
Yeah. Which means that it's re you know it is really interesting. But trying to get anyone to tell us, it's like, so what exactly is this? So we thought, right, let's go, let's go visit it. Let's write a piece about what it is exactly. Yeah. And here it is. Yeah. The the definitive Moog Sound Lab piece. No, it's a really interesting piece. Uh, little pieces from Jimmy Tenor and um, Richard Norris from The Grid and, and Nick Void from Factory Floor about... Um, well, there's a record label there. attached. Yeah. So that you can use this lab that's packed with Moog goodies that's in some faceless corridor in... in was it University of Surrey? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I keep wanting to say it's yeah, University yeah. of Sussex. It's Surrey. So these, yeah, so these artists are invited in to use it and they've got a sound engineer course, a world-famous sound engineer course, and the students can see these people in action. And then a lot of these recordings, are, I mean, they've just given a, they're given a free reign to do what they like. And a lot of this stuff is making its way out on the Moog Recordings Library record label. So that's all interesting stuff. That's superb stuff. Paul Smith told me when I went to visit that um, the Moog... Uh, so he'd been talking to Moog for a while about getting involved and then sending over one of the amazingly, amazing, I think it's the three. Uh, yes, yeah, the new the version. full size yeah. replica of the three, the modular system. It's massive. And um, they sort of sent it over and forgot to tell him. <laughs> and, it, and it was just, sort of, it was sat in a warehouse at Heathrow. Yeah, no, it's in, yeah, it's yeah, in the piece, yeah. 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 <laughs> so that's what we got. Gabe Guernsey. Can we talk to Gabe Guernsey? He's one half of Factory Floor. That album is. I love that album. I think that may be my favourite album so far this year. But it's an, it's, a, it's got a narrative. So it's about going out. For the mm, night. Yeah, about going out. So it's about getting you know getting ready to go out, going out, clubbing, and like then the come down afterwards. Yeah, it's yeah, it's um. Saves me doing it. Just, well, just listen to the album. Thanks for doing it for me, Mr. Guernsey. Yes. Um, it's a. I love. I do love that record, though. It's terrific. It's um, deep, deep sounds on it. Um, We've got a little piece about Miss Red, whose album you reviewed, Mark. I liked that album. That was very good. Yeah, she's very interesting. So she's a dance hall MC, who's made an album with the Bug, who people will know from uh, Ninja Tune. He makes kind of very deep dubby records and she's I mean she's it's just it's an incredible album we put it on and just uh, just stopped the office in our tracks it was, what is this it just you know it sounds like something we're not particularly used to hearing very good it's good it's good very good got Max Richter as well and Anna yeah. Meredith yeah Anna Meredith who was hosting the BBC coverage of the electronic um, stuff at the proms yeah a week or two ago yeah um, where they debuted Daphne Oram's piece and Suzanne Charney did uh, an impro bootle set which yeah, was yeah. amazing it's great seeing people improvise on bootlers I've seen you see I've seen that before it's yeah amazing. they're amazing things that was really great We've got Anna talking about her influences, and I must admit that this is sort of one of our regular features where we get artists to talk about the things that have influenced them, and it can be anything at all. It's not just about what records they liked when they were growing up. Well, no, we tend um, to ban that, though. Yeah, well, it, which is good, but, you know, the, the old one is fine, but 
I think Anna's choices are just particularly spectacular. This I love watering the lawn is an influence for her, and uh, denial is an influence. Uh, I think it's hip hop abs. <laughs> it's brilliant. <laughs> so um, there's a very busy mind. Yeah, it was great. Going on there. Well, I mean, well I've, done. Spoke, I've spoken to her. I've interviewed Anna. She's fantastic. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Yeah. <laughs> Which is always a good thing. New album, new album next year. Apparently. Cool. Looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. I was really pleased to see in Buried Treasure in the album uh, section, which is uh, where writers talk about an album that they discovered that might be a little sort of less well known. Um, the Soothing Sounds for Baby, Volume One, by Raymond Scott, released in 1964. Raymond Scott is someone that we one of these days we'll, we'll do mm. something big on I think but yeah fascinating character American electronic private electronic music studio that that just he piled so much money into really innovative um, and he made his records to um, electronic music to to calm down babies <laughs> and go to sleep and, um, but yeah, James, James, our writer, is is a new dad, and he's been uh, yeah he's been playing this to his well here she was a week old and he wrote this and, and it works it worked. a treat unbelievable I know <laughs> yeah very good so um, got to mention to Regal Worm as well our, one of our favourite albums of the month that's an absolutely amazing record I, it's one of those things where um, so Regal Worm from Sheffield. Uh, Involved with um, with Gerard Gosling, who's one half yeah, of Iron Monster. Monster, and they seem to be between them. The, those guys like a little factory of bands and all sorts of. Well, it's like the binge thing, isn't it? It's like there's a yeah. You know, yeah. So it's Dean Dean Hoder. And They're just constantly bringing out records that are, that are great. This Pig Views, it's called this album. It's it's hard to describe. I'd I, I hesitate to describe it without pushing people off, but um, it's one of those records that when, when you hear it, you think, I, this, this is truly off the dial. <laughs> it really is. It, well, it's prog, isn't it? It's kind of. Well, yes, it it's is. It's kind of prog yeah. with knobs on, isn't it? It's yeah. like synth. It's, yeah. it's, it's loaded prog. with synths. It's prog without the appalling pretentiousness that made prog not really listenable in the 70s it's they sort of stripped that out and put in just being insane um <laughs> but the, 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 it's, it's great it's it? pretty insane it really is it, it, it's but it, the tune the, the the tunes on it are, are great the musicianship is amazing and mm. um the sounds the, the sheer inventiveness of it um I, yeah i'd recommend <laughs> give another spin yeah, uh, for sure, for sure. We've got a book extract this this month as well. We have. From David Stubbs. Um, hello, David. I'm we sure all know and love. <laughs> I'm sure he is. Um, David, who we worked with at Mullin Maker many, many, many years ago, has written a fantastic book called Mars by 1980, The Story of Electronic Music, which is what it says on the tin, really. Yeah, it's a series of, well, I mean, they're, I guess they're essays, aren't they? Mm. They're quite personal essays, so it's not a definitive. He makes it very clear that this isn't a definitive history, so don't write to him and say, you've left this out and left yeah. that out. He, you know, he dips in and he dips out. 
it's, and it's fascinating. Mm. It is. It's a really good read. Um, I I was. Um, was that, was that, there was a copy on your desk if, when, when it first yeah, came in. Yeah, it isn't in. there anymore. No, it's not. It's on my desk now. <laughs> so have you read it? Have I pitched it. No, because I took it. I nicked it off. You <laughs> nicked it quite quickly. Yeah, it. yeah. Um, I just thought. I, I just sort of. Is it on your desk? Just, yes, it is. I but rarely. Actually, I, I rarely. I don't think it is. I think it's. It's by my bed now. Oh, oh you've taken it home, right? So you hid now. it under all that crap on your desk, so I couldn't find it. And then you've it taken it home. Well, I started to read. I was where, just, where it will remain. I just read. went. To, I went. To, I started to read a little bit of. to read a little bit of the extract we were going to run. So I started reading it, and I just found myself sort of two or three chapters further down the line sudden, quite suddenly it's a really really easy easy read in the sense that it's you know you, you, you little get words quickly. lots of little, little words no not so for David David doesn't use little words but uh, it was a really entertaining um, but there's so many but we get so really many good. books I find it very difficult to finish them I read I get about halfway through and then I have to move on to the next one because we do we tend to do a lot of books. We do a lot of books in the front section as well. There's so many books. Yeah, I think I think our readers probably like books, don't they? Because yeah. hopefully they they like a good read. Um, so it's a literate readership. Yes. I'm on the Beastie Boys book at the moment. Okay. Their autobiography. That's that shaping up. That's fabulous. Obviously. <laughs> it's, it's a weighty. It's a weighty tome, as we like to say. I always have a massive pile next to my bed of books I'm waiting to read. I've got Simon Reynolds's um, Glam book. Oh, right, yeah, no, I've not got that one. I've got that, that that's, uh, that's in the queue. I might yeah. take it on holiday with me, but it's, it's, so, big. it's really big. So I'm, I'm not sure. Yeah, his books are, I've got his, his post-punk one, and there's a, his, there's a companion to that, which is the interviews he did for the post-punk Oh, really, I didn't know that. Yeah, so oh, they're okay. kind of unabridged. They're the, they're the interviews that formed that book, which right. is which is fabulous. Yeah. But again, it's a you know it's a doorstop of a yeah. book, not one for you know. You to get Kindle, Mark. If we'd have, if we, well, yeah, yeah. The trouble with those is, I I like reading a book. I like the turning a page and stuff. I have I've read quite a lot on Kindles, and but uh, doesn't quite give me the same emotional attachment and also when I had the first iPad I remember which I don't know if you remember the first iPads they were pretty heavy affairs. they were very heavy yeah and got my I first was reading it in bed still use it. Uh, as, I, as yeah. I generally do and dozing off as I generally do and uh, then the next thing I knew my iPad had hit me across the bridge of the nose <laughs> Which was a very shocking experience. Books kind of land, and, and because they, they, they sort of fit around your nose as they land. <laughs> that's good. But, but the iPad... Is that why books are designed like that? That's right. That's what they, they don't do. suffocate. Yeah, yeah. It's this health and safety thing that they decided to do. But the iPad is a solid piece of glass. It is, isn't it? Uh, you don't want that landing on, with metal behind it. But you that is the other problem with reading, nice. though, isn't it? You go to bed and go, to go I'll just have a little read. And yeah. Before you know it. That's right. And then you have to read that bit again the following night. And yeah. then you get about a sentence further on. <laughs> so it's a combination of that and too many books. Yeah. If we'd have thought about it, what we could have done for this podcast would be a, a holiday reading special and talk about books. But we didn't, so we haven't. Oh, now you say that. I know. Now, when we are right at the very end of the podcast, thank you so much for listening. We uh, hope to uh, see you again soon. Um, 
if you want to buy this issue, summer 1978, uh, Devo, Suicide, Talking Head, Blondie, in big letters on the cover, um, with uh, Devo 7-inch. Um, you need to be quick, because um, our pre-orders have gone a bit, bit mad, this one. Um, <clears throat> Not quite as mad as the mute issue, which we when we sold out in in about 36 hours. Um, so we do have some copies left, but we don't have many left. So if you want to get a hold of that, you need to go to electronicsound.co.uk, pretty sharpish, and uh, give us some money. Or we'll, send you, from we'll send you a mag and a, and a record, uh, or you can buy it from the news agents. It will be in the news agents. Uh, by the time this goes out, so not with um, a record attached, but not with a record. And we're in Tesco's actually, actually, not this one, I think the one after. <laughs> we're um, not in Tesco's, we're not in Tesco's. That's the main thing to take away. This is when where can't you buy this? <laughs> uh, it's, all, it's all going so well. On that uh, bombshell, thank you very much for listening. See you again soon. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.